Over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking just at one chapter of 1 Peter. We're going to look at chapter 1. And we've entitled the series Imperishable. And because this is a word that Peter uses three times in this chapter to describe three different truths of the gospel that that we have as Christians that cannot be changed and that cannot be taken from us. And Peter uses this word because he's wanting the churches that he's writing to to be encouraged. He's wanting them to grow as Christians, and he's wanting them to stand firm in what they already know about the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, Peter needs to write this because of its context. For those of you who don't know, the the letter of 1 Peter uh, was a letter written to a group of churches that were suffering, that were undergoing great trials and oppositions um, simply because they followed Jesus. And from what we can read in the letter, if you were to read through it, uh, that might be a helpful thing to do tonight. Go home and read through it. It'll probably take you about 10 minutes. You'll kind of get an idea of what this church is going through. Uh, And what we can guess from the letter is that they're not quite at the point where they're being killed for being Christians. They're not having their churches bulldozed, uh, though certainly that is about to happen. Nero is just becoming emperor in Rome, and of course he is famous for his persecutions of the Christians at this time. But at this point, it seems that Peter is writing to a group of people that are being ridiculed, that are being marginalized, that are facing increasing pressure from the government. They're being taken to court. Um, They're being slandered by their family, by their friends, being insulted and oppressed because they follow Jesus. And you know what? It must have really have, have shaken these believers, these early believers, this early church, can the gospel, can the good news of Jesus really be true if this is what we're facing? Why would God allow this to happen to us? If we're special, if if we've been saved by Christ, then why are we facing uh, this opposition? And so what Peter does is he goes into a study to address this issue, to write to these churches and to confirm to them that what they heard from him about the gospel is true, and they should stand firm in it. That's the purpose of the letter. That's going to be the purpose of our series as we look at chapter 1. Just to prove that to you, that I've not made that up, turn to the very end of 1 Peter, uh, chapter 5. It's just helpful to look at the end of these epistles. They often explain to us um, why they were written. 1 Peter 5, and if you could look just halfway through verse 12, Peter writes this, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter wants these churches to stand firm in the gospel. So I'm hoping that as we look at these three imperishable truths from chapter 1, myself and Sam will be looking at this over the next uh, three weeks. I'm hoping that as we do this, it it will help us as a church, to stand firm um, when we are undergoing opposition. And if you're you're here tonight, uh, and maybe you would say that you're not a Christian or you're investigating Christianity, I really hope that as we look at what Peter's going to say in this opening section, you'll see how it is that Christians can endure through suffering and opposition. You'll see the hope, the living hope that Peter describes uh, in this letter and you too will be able to enjoy that. So tonight we're going to look at our first imperishable. And this is what Peter calls the imperishable inheritance. And if we get this, this, this would be amazing if we got this. Because this would help us 
when we suffer. And being a Christian, Jesus is really clear about this. Suffering is kind of not an optional extra. It's it's almost a guarantee with him. He's got the worst recruitment campaign ever. He, He says that if you want to follow him, you have to take up your cross and follow him. Suffering is what will come if we live for Jesus. And if you haven't suffered as a Christian, then chances are you probably will. If you live long enough, you're going to bleed. So we need to know how can we endure when those times do happen. Let's look at what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 1, and read verses 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, that the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let me pray before we uh, look at this passage in detail. Father, thank you uh, that your word is profoundly realistic. Thank you that you have spoken to us and that you have been honest and real and true with us, that you, the sovereign God of all the universe, have told us that if we follow you, there will be times of great difficulty, that there will be times of trials and suffering. Father, for people in this room right now, this may be more real for a lot of people here than it is for others. And so we pray that the the words of Peter would comfort, would give us that bigger perspective. Father, we pray for that uh, deeper knowledge of the gospel. Lord, help us when we do face difficulties to hold on to Christ. And may these words be an anchor for our soul. Lord, thank you for the great truths that we will see tonight in your word. Pray that you'd open our hearts and open our ears to listen to what your Spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Amen. So Peter wants these churches, he wants us, he wants us to stand firm in the gospel, to keep going through sufferings. And Peter's method, really all throughout this letter, to do that is to remind us of who you are. So he's constantly saying to these churches, remember who you are. It's like Mufasa from The Lion King. Remember who you are. Because when you remember who you are, then you'll remember what you've got in Christ Jesus. So Peter's description of a Christian, it's there in verse 1. And it's not just for the people he's writing to, it's for Christians throughout all the ages. And he uses a term there to describe us. He says, he calls the Christians there elect exiles. So we are elect That is, we are chosen by God himself before the foundations of the world were even laid down. God chose us. We are elect. And secondly, we are exiles. That is, we are foreigners on this earth. Jesus Christ has saved us for eternity with him. This here, all that we experience and enjoy, is not our home. We are bound for something greater. Therefore, we are elect exiles. That's who we are. And when we get that, it will help us to recognize what we've got. So verses 3 to 12, that's kind of the verses that I really want to focus on uh, this evening. And these are three areas that Peter wants us to understand uh, about being elect exiles. He wants us to recognize these three things that we have as elect exiles. And that will help us when we do face the trials of life. I've got them outlined on the back of your service sheet uh, just to help you as we navigate through this. There are three points and they're alliteration, so all is well. Firstly, Peter wants us to recognize that as elect exiles, our promised salvation is guaranteed. Secondly, he wants us to recognize our present sufferings will prove our genuineness. And finally, he wants us to recognize our privileged position and knowing the gospel. That's the three things that Peter wants us to recognize as elect exiles. So firstly then, we need to recognize if we're Christians or elect exiles that we have this promised salvation that is guaranteed. This is what Peter says in in verses 3 to 5. In the Old Testament, Peter's a Jew, it's important to remember, um, and he didn't regard the Old Testament scriptures as something separate uh, from Christianity. He, he regarded Christianity as a fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture, which is why you'll get a lot of Old Testament imagery in 1 Peter. But one of the dominant images in the Old Testament is when God rescued the nation of Israel and brought them out of slavery into a promised land. And Peter sees that as a kind of picture of what God is doing with Christians. God has promised us that we too will receive an inheritance like they were promised. But it's not a physical land that we're to inherit. Rather, It's a heavenly one. This is our inheritance, a place that that he says will be undefiled. There will be no sin or evil or death or suffering. A place that is unfading. It will not die out, but it will endure forever. And if you're a Christian, he is saying to these churches, this is what's on your horizon. How did we get that? It wasn't because we were great or because uh, we did loads of good things. It wasn't because we went to church. It's not because we prayed X amount of times. But Peter says here in verse 3 that this happened because of God's great 
mercy. That was the initiating factor in our salvation, the mercy of God. It's purely down to the fact that he is rich in, uh, rich in mercy. It is by his mercy that Peter says he has caused us to be born again. So we've got this heavenly inheritance, this new land, and we can inherit this new land. We can have this new future because God has made us new people. We are born again. That, that's what is needed to inherit God's land. God doesn't want nice people in eternity with him. He wants new people. And if you trust and if you follow Jesus, you are a new person. It's as if you've been born again. It's a new heart with new desires. And if you're born again, he says, you have a hope that is unshakable. He calls it a living hope there in verse 3. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, that term hope, it's not how like we would use the word um, hope. Uh, it's often when we use it, it, we use it in kind of uncertain terms. You know, so I, I hope that I'll pass my exams. Uh, I hope that I'll have pizza tonight for my dinner. I really hope that Hibs will get promoted this season. I really hope that. Um, and those are uncertain things. Some are, some are more uncertain than others. Um, so it's not like we'd use the term hope. Peter's, Peter's talking about something here that is 100% guaranteed. It's a living hope. It's a hope in Jesus. And Jesus is not dead. He is alive. See, belief in heaven, belief in eternity, is not some form of wish fulfillment. But for Peter, it's rooted in a factual event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, an event which he himself saw with his own eyes. That is the sure and certain sign that death is not the end, that there is this glorious future that we have been saved for. We have that salvation on our horizon. When Peter talks about salvation, he always talks about it as something that we're going to get, something that's in the future, a salvation that he says will be revealed in the last time, verse 5. And it's promised by God himself. It is sealed with certainty through the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Now, notice the language. Look at these verses. Notice how Peter is trying to get these churches just to feel how certain, how sure this hope is. This inheritance, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven for us. It's amazing. God is keeping this for us. We're not holding on to it ourselves. Our hope is so certain and so sure because it's tied in with God. He's the one who's holding it for us. If it was down to us, it wouldn't be sure and certain. But God is keeping this inheritance for us. He has promised us this inheritance. But not only has the inheritance been kept by God, look at verse 5. We are being kept by God. Do you see that? Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Now, do you see how this helps these churches, how this helps us if we're going through trials or difficulties? Persecution, opposition, suffering. When you experience that, it, it involves something being taken from you. 
whether that be our health, our reputation, our job, our buildings, maybe even our family and relationships, these things may be taken from us. But Peter is saying, look, there is something you can never lose. God himself guards it. God himself keeps it for you. That is your imperishable inheritance. These things, they're all fleeting. But there is a wonderful, beautiful prospect on your horizon. And if you follow Jesus, it is guaranteed. Let me illustrate it like this. It's a quote from Lord of the Rings. Uh, I do read other books, by the way, but I just find, I find Tolkien so quotable. Uh, and I love this quote. Um, it's from the third book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And in the novel, the, the two heroes, Frodo and Sam, they're kind of on this perilous quest. And it seems that they're not really going to make it. It seems that they've lost all hope. They're in this dark, barren wasteland. And the quest that they've undertaken uh, looks like it's about to fail. But as they're lying there in this land, Sam catches a glimpse of something beautiful. And this is what Tolkien writes. I love how he writes. There, peeping above the cloud rack, above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, The thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was a light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Now for a moment, his own fate, even his master's, ceased to trouble him. And he crawled into a deep, untroubled sleep. See, what what Tolkien is saying, saying, what Sam is seeing is that the shadows of of evil, of suffering, of oppression are nothing but shadows. They are passing things. There is a beauty and a light that cannot be hid by it. And when you glimpse that, there is a hope that you can have that will help you endure. No, it's hard if you're going through a tough time as a Christian. It's hard to hold on to hope and it's hard when we're suffering because what suffering does is it causes us to become quite introspective. It's hard to see beyond our present experiences. We feel our pain. We don't feel 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. We don't feel this inheritance that has been promised to us. And Peter's not wanting us just to to cheer up because in the end, everything's going to be okay. But he is saying this. Look, you may not feel this, but we need to get real. We need to see that there is a bigger picture at work here. God has brought us into something that is so wonderful, that is so glorious, that it puts our present sufferings into perspective. It doesn't remove the pain of them but it does give us a perspective to help endure through them. So how do we do that? How do we hold on to this future? Let's be honest, it seems so distant and so far away. How do we hold on to that and not get too consumed with the present? Well, we've got to look to Jesus. He is our living hope. He is the star which no shadow can hide. He is the proof that there is more to suffering than what we may see. 
Because without him, without God, without Christ, there is only darkness and pain. He is the hope we need to hold us firm in the storms and to make us long for our inheritance. He is the one whose pattern that we follow. That's going to be a big thing for Peter in this letter. Jesus suffered. So too will we. Jesus died. So too will we. But where is Jesus now? He lives, and that is our certainty. Jesus rose, and he is in glory, and therefore so too will we be there. That's exactly why Jesus came. This is not some pie-in-the-sky ethereal thing. This is real, solid, certain hope. I used to know an elderly Christian in a previous church in Dundee. And um, he was going through a really, really tough time. Um, and it was hard for him. I know it was. And I used to always ask him every Sunday I saw him, I'd ask him, how are you getting on today? How, how are things going? And he'd always reply like this, well... I'll be better yet. That's exactly right. It may not be good just now, but you know what? I will be better yet. Everything in this world will fade out. Whatever you look to help you get through sufferings and trials, know this, it will fade and it will be gone eventually. All of this is nothing but a vapor, a mist in time. All that we hold dear and all that avails us will pass like a shadow, but the inheritance that Christ has guaranteed for us, that is imperishable. We are exiles chosen by God. This world is not our home, but that inheritance is. Secondly, Peter says, our sufferings, present suffering proves our genuineness. Let's look at what Peter says about this church. They're going through a tough time. This is real. This is not make-believe. These, these people are really suffering. Look at what Peter says, and look how dominant the word joy is in this. He says, verse 6, In this you rejoice. So in the fact that you have this inheritance, it makes you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory." Do you see, see what he's saying? Do you see how he's trying to encourage these churches? He's saying, look, I know you've been suffering. I know you've been going through hard times. But don't you see what your suffering is doing? It's proving the genuineness of what you believe. You're still loving God. You're still rejoicing in Christ. You've not seen him. I have, but you've not seen him, and you still love him. You still rejoice in him. You still believe in him. And the trials that you have gone through as individuals and as churches has not taken that away. That's an amazing thing. And it's because they have not taken that away that you can be assured, brothers and sisters, that what you have is real. Your faith in Christ is precious more precious than, than all the gold in the world. That will continue for eternity. Gold is perishable. 
And your sufferings have tested that and have proven that it's true. They have made it even more precious. See, it's easy to believe something in your head, isn't it? But to believe it in practice is a different matter. You know, if you, I know people who, who have tried Christianity, they would say, but it didn't work for them. And what it meant a lot of the time was they tried being a Christian uh, and they went through some tough time in their life and God didn't help them, so they abandoned it. And if you come to Christ and you expect only blessings from him and you're going to walk away as soon as any hard times hit, then it's not a real faith. Because faith in Christ is, is about loving him. It's about enjoying him. It's about having a relationship with God. And if you're just expecting nothing but blessings from God, then you're essentially just marrying God for his money. It's not real. And trials expose that falseness. But Peter is saying to these churches, you're not like that. You're the real deal. And the suffering you face is not pointless. Rather, it's being used by God to show that to you, that your faith is genuine. And in doing so, God is using it not to diminish, but to heighten our joy. Those trials, what, what they do is they will remove the things that hinder us from clinging on to Christ and his gospel like a fire that purifies the dirt off a raw piece of gold. It's a great image burns away the impurities so that the gold comes out purer the other end. And if you're here tonight and you've gone through trials, or maybe just now or even going through trials most likely, and you're still holding on to Jesus, even if it feels, to be honest, that you are just barely holding on to him, if we hold on to him and his gospel in these darkest moments, we can come out of the other side and still say, perhaps now even with a, with a greater sincerity than we ever could before, that Jesus is our joy. We love him. Doesn't that give us confidence that our faith is real? And do you know what? If suffering is what it takes to make me certain of my faith, because it is so precious, if suffering is what it takes to make me certain of my faith in Jesus, then it is worthwhile. I have, I have doubts sometimes about the gospel. I guess we all do, if we're honest. And often these doubts arise out of the painful situations that God puts us into. But if what Peter is saying here is true then those situations can be used by God to help us to trust him and to love him and to enjoy him more. Uh, this is how Charles Spurgeon, famous Baptist preacher from the 19th century, put it. This is what Spurgeon says. He says, it seems to me that doubt, to doubt is worse than trial. I'd sooner suffer affliction than be left to question the gospel or my own interest in it. Certainty is a jewel worth purchasing, even with our heart's own blood. So what he's saying there is that suffering has helped him become more certain of the gospel, and therefore it is worthwhile. Now, don't mishear this. We shouldn't willfully seek out opposition uh, to bring us assurance. This is not something that we choose but Spurgeon, or, or even Peter, is saying that when God puts us in the fiery trials, he does so not to destroy us, but to strengthen us. Sometimes, sometimes God lets us suffer because 
That's what we need, even if we can't see it, even if at the time all we feel is pain. But the key is this, that even through tears and confusion and hurt and anger, perhaps, we can still say, Jesus, I don't know why you're letting this happen to me. I don't know why this is, why I'm experiencing this. But I still love you, and I do want to love you more. I want you to be my joy. Verse 8 is such an amazing verse. I wish we could just pitch up camp and spend the whole night on verse 8, but we don't have time. That's real Christianity right there, verse 8 of 1 Peter 1. That is what genuine Christianity looks like. See, their faith in Christ, it wasn't born out of their circumstance, was it? Because if their faith was born out of their circumstance, when suffering came along, they would have just abandoned it. Their faith was born out of their joy of the gospel. That's why when we look at the big picture and we think of the imperishable inheritance, that's what makes it so glorious. It's not the the land that we're going to get because we don't know what that'll be like. It's being with Christ. He is our joy. He is what makes our inheritance so precious and so exciting. See, this is the mark of true Christianity. And we've got to be careful here because there is a difference between joy and happiness. He's not saying that when you're in the fire of life, you, you, you just smile as if everything's going to be okay. That's not, that's, you're a fool if you do that. But he is saying that it's possible to have a feeling of contentment that undergirds our tears and our anguish. And to, to look forward, to know that there is something greater that I am holding on to, something greater than what I am experiencing. And often that joy, it's, it's really hard to express this because, as Peter says, it's inexpressible. But that joy, it, it sometimes it, um, it comes out when we sing these songs in church, when we spend time with God's people. For some of us, the, the joy is so deep that it very rarely comes out, but it's still there. Love and joy for Jesus. That's the twin pillars of authentic Christian faith. Suffering and opposition, they may shake them to the core so that we feel that that they are barely holding us up, but they are only shaken so they can be built up stronger. And I know that for some of you this is hard, and Peter's not saying chin up and smile, but he is saying pain is not pointless if you're a believer. You're an elect exile. And as you continue through the struggles of life, your perseverance will eventually result, end of verse 7, will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We believe in him, we love him, we enjoy him, we have not seen him like these early Christians did, but we will see him one day. We will see him when he calls us and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And it will result in his glory. That's the gospel. We obtain that amazing salvation. That's what we'll get. And Peter moves on to say in these final verses that the very fact that we know that, and we can boast in that and say that with certainty because it's linked to Jesus, the very fact that we know that is his final point of encouragement. Being an elect exile means recognizing, third and final point, our privileged situation in knowing the gospel. Look at verse 10. 
So this salvation, this imperishable inheritance we're looking forward to, Peter writes this about it. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. So that's you in these churches uh, that have been scattered throughout this area. You here in Chalmers Church, these prophets who were predicting these amazing things about Christ in the Old Testament, they were serving not themselves, but they were serving you here today in 2015 in Chalmers Church, Edinburgh. It's revealed to them they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which the angels long to look. You know, if you've ever been ridiculed for following Jesus, if you've ever been made to feel marginalized or just, I don't know, patronized by people, like the people that Peter is writing to, it's easy to feel, it's easy to feel insignificant. The gospel doesn't seem this, like this powerful message that's been brought forth to save the world at that moment. And though trials may indeed strengthen our faith, it doesn't stop us feeling dissatisfied when there's moments when we are oppressed for following Jesus. So Peter concludes this section by giving us here the bigger picture again and saying to this church, saying to us here today, oh my, you are in such a privileged situation in the scope of history. You know about the gospel. You know about the grace that has been revealed to you. You know how Jesus came to uh, rescue rebellious sinners like us and take us back to him. You know how he accomplished this through his suffering, his death, and his resurrection from the grave. You know that you have an imperishable inheritance because you know Christ. Don't you realize that the prophets of the Old Testament, they long to know this. They long to know what you know. See, before Jesus came, this was how God spoke to his people. God spoke to people, he spoke to humanity through prophets. They were his mouthpiece. But when God spoke through the prophets, they they talked about something they didn't quite understand. So they knew somehow, they knew that God was going to save humanity. They knew that salvation wasn't just for Israel, but it was for the entire world. They knew that there would be this figure called the Messiah who would come and be the instrument of God's salvation. They knew the prophet Isaiah, for example. Isaiah 53 prophesied about the sufferings of the Messiah, as Peter talks about here. King David in Psalm 2 prophesied about the glories of the Messiah. But they couldn't piece it together. They didn't have the complete jigsaw, as it were. But Peter's saying that the Spirit of Christ was working in them for our benefit. It's for our benefit because we do have the complete jigsaw. We've got the final piece, and that is Jesus. We see how God's salvation plan fits together. These suffering Christians, we as suffering Christians, have not been loved for a moment but for endless ages and eternity. And this is all part of God's overarching plan of salvation. But not only did the prophets desire to know what we know. Look at the end of verse 12. Things in which even the angels long to look. It's amazing. Even the angels of heaven 
long to see what we know about Christ. Those who are in the very presence of God, who have been there for thousands, millions, billions of years, I don't know. We don't know. But those who have been in the presence of God have been looking and wondering, how is God going to take this rebellious creation and save them? How is God going to rescue these sinners? How could that be possible? We know how it is possible because we know Christ. And think about this. If angels, if angels love to look at the work of God and saving sinners like us, how much more should we, who are the very beneficiaries of that salvation, long to learn more of how Christ has saved us? And here's the point that Peter leaves us on. Whether we are feeling downtrodden, oppressed, or marginalized, Peter's saying, look, you are at the very heart of God's salvation plan. And though we suffer like Jesus, as indeed was prophesied of him, we will also be in glory with Jesus, as indeed was prophesied of him. Peter's driving us to that big picture, to look forward to our imperishable inheritance that we are journeying towards uh, as elect exiles. Some of you may be here tonight and you may not be a convinced Christian. Maybe this sounds, I don't know, too good to be true. Maybe it does sound like a form of wish fulfillment, like it's trying to make sense out of something which is, on the surface, quite senseless. Isn't it possible, though, isn't it possible if God's there and if he does love us, if there's this God who has this overarching plan, if God who has existed from all eternity and can see from beginning to end, who sees the whole scope of time, isn't it possible that that God could use the sufferings in this world for some ultimate good, even if we as finite human beings cannot see it? Peter is saying that yes, for these Christians, their suffering has been used for a good. It's been used to prepare for them a joy, an inheritance. So he says, fix your eyes on that future we have guaranteed. Recognize that the suffering that you face now can be used by God to help you to get to that future and acknowledge that the very fact that you know this is an amazing gift of grace. We must be more heavenly minded if we are to be of any earthly good. We must be. That glorious prospect is what will sustain us through life's hardships. Let me close just with a quote from, uh, from C.S. Lewis, um, similar to Tolkien, I guess, uh, from The Last Battle. Um, the main kids in the story, they've all died. They died in a railway accident, and they're with Aslan. And Aslan in the story, for those of you that don't know, is kind of an allegory of Jesus. He's this uh, big... Uh, lion. And this is what he says to the kids. He says, there was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. Love that term, the Shadowlands. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories. 
And we must truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was the only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world, all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Or as Peter says at the end of his letter, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, this, these truths are so grand so hard for us to get our head around sometimes. It's so easy for us to, to hear this and to not let it sink into our hearts. Father, some of us just don't feel that. We feel that our joy and our love for you is waning. Please strengthen and restore us. Father, for those who are going through difficulties and trials, help us to see the big picture. Help us to hold on to that salvation. Help us to draw nearer to Christ, to enjoy him more, to love him more, so that we have something to guide us through the pains of life. Help us to keep focused on eternity with you. Help us to always have our minds on that, not to make this world our home, but to recognize that we are elect exiles, journeying to be with you, Lord Jesus. Lord, may these words not go in one ear and out the other, but may you strengthen those who need strengthened by them. May you help us to learn from them so that when we do face the trials, we may be strong in our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.